Hello and welcome to Animalia, the podcast all about animals. And the weird and interesting things that they do. I'm Annie. I'm Farley. And I'm David. So today we are here with our friend Tom. Say hi, Tom. G'day. So Tom is a PhD student and do you want to tell us a little bit about your research? Yeah, sure. So really just started uh, and don't really have the best idea, but it's going to be something about sexual selection and extinction. Okay, that works. <laughs> well, today, today, guys, we are doing a 2019 wrap-up. And it's holiday time now, and it's still 2019, although you're probably listening to this in 2020. But we figured, well, why not go through some fun animal things that happened this year and tell you guys all about them. So all of us have kind of compiled a few things that we thought were cool or interesting or potentially interesting to you guys. And uh, yeah, we want to go through them. Yeah. So who wants to start? Do you want to start, Farley? I don't really want to start. <laughs> Come on, Farley. <laughs> I can start. All right, Annie's starting. All right. So, all right, my first thing that I am bringing to the table is that researchers taught gray seals how to make particular sounds. And so they were basically looking at vocal learning in gray seals. And they basically taught seals to sing the Star Wars theme, what? sing Twinkle, <laughs> Twinkle, Little Star, and make... Uh-huh. Vocal sounds of humans. Wait, what? <laughs> so they taught them songs. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Were the seals successful? Yeah. They were not bad. There's videos <laughs> online. I mean, you know, you wouldn't necessarily recognize that it's the Star Wars theme, but they're pretty good. So they did it by, so like seals kind of make a moaning noise, right? So what they were doing is they recorded seal noises and then they manipulated them to, you know, be in the the sound of these tunes and then they trained the seals that they'd play them something and the seals would try and mimic it back. Oh, weird. Yeah. Smart. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really cool to watch. We have to link this video to our page. That's amazing. Oh yeah, definitely. No, we'll definitely put this on our social media. Um, but yeah, they did pretty well. Um, and this is important too, because this is sort of looking at how other mammals use their vocal can use their vocal tracks in the same way that we do, and these kind of studies are pretty rare. And yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I wanted to say about this. We well, hope that the from the, when they produced the video of them doing Star Wars, you pray that it, Disney was just like, okay, we'll fund your research for the rest of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be pretty nice. Yeah, and uh, and the other important thing too is that they. We're getting the seals to make sounds that are sort of outside of their natural range as well. So they're mimicking things that they sounds that they wouldn't normally make on so their own. So it's more intentional then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. It is. Um, and I've, I don't know. Have you ever heard of any other mammals that can do this? I mean, well, the obvious ones are the birds, yeah, all the parrots that can do it, but never heard of any mammals. Yeah, and that was actually a really big point of this study as well because there's been a lot of attempts to say teach primates how to make mimic human speech and they've just been very unsuccessful. So yeah, there's, there's not much there. I think there's some cetaceans, right? Having some whales. Yeah. There'd be some dogs as well too. Like there's pretty famous viral videos of dogs making human sounds and that kind of thing. I think that's coincidental though. I think like dogs be like, oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I like, I love you thing or something like that. I'm like, yeah. doing it. Really it does sound like they're mimicking though. Like there, there's some mimicking going on there. But yeah, I think it is, it's definitely still within the range of sounds that they would normally make, right? Yeah. Rather than something going a bit different. Range, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Okay, Tom, you're up. Okay, so I'm going to start with some ant facts. 
<laughs> so there was a there was big news in the ant world, and that was that the land speed record for ants was broken this year. Um, so, <laughs> is that what, okay, big news, guys. Big, big, big news. news. Um, so the uh, it was the uh, Saharan silver ant um, that has really short legs and the interesting thing about this is it broke the record of an ant with really long legs <laughs> and i have the figure here so they <laughs> clocked it at 800 millimeters per second which uh, is quite hard to, um, <laughs> so to visualize to uh, it sounds really fast but if we work this out to kilometers per hour it ends up being roughly three kilometers an hour <laughs> or like a really um leisurely walking pace that's Three actually pretty kilometers. quick. It's yeah. actually pretty in impressive for an ant. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing about this is that they found that uh, they do it through an incredible cadence. So their legs are just going to overdrive. <laughs> and the reason they do it is because they feed in the middle of the day in the Sahara Desert where the temperatures are extremely hot. And all basically they feed on things that have died due to heat stress. So they need to run around as fast as they can, reduce the amount of time they're actually touching the ground, but also reduce the amount of time they're actually in, uh, out in full sunlight. So they developed this really, really fast um, running style to basically just run in, grab all these things that have died of heat stress and then run back to the nest before they themselves die of heat stress. That's why do they have littler legs though? Yeah, that's the strange thing. Uh, I think it's because so like, no, I'm thinking as a man with very small legs, I feel like I'm at a disadvantage. So they're the fastest, and yet they because they make more contact with the ground too. None of that makes sense. Well, I, I think the thing is that they can run so fast and their legs pump so quickly that it actually is more efficient than someone with long legs. Okay, or an ant with long legs. Hey, good, good thing we're little leg guys. This is good for me. Just a little Bad power legs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're the opposite completely. Yeah. yeah. Okay, little short legs are good for running across hot surfaces. Three kilometer per hour ants. That's, yeah, okay. That's a good one. That is good. I like it. Can I, can I butt in and interrupt you, Farley, yeah, and bring in another ant fact? No since, way. <laughs> <laughs> since we're on the topic of ants. Um, so an ant expert in Utah found a new species of ant in his backyard. <laughs> That's very convenient. Yeah, so this was published in Wait, a no, study. This is not real. Just, <laughs> this is fake. It's totally real. It's published in a study this year titled Expect the Unexpected. And yeah, so he was just in his backyard in the evening and just looking around and saw some ants that looked a bit weird. And so he had a closer look at them and he assumed that they were like, you know, some introduced species that had arrived in his potting mix or something. He was having a look and being like, yeah, they don't belong around here. But he looked into it and no, there was like a whole colony under his backyard and they were a new species, never previously described. They were, seemed to be native and what they think is that they were probably mostly living underground and also nobody takes that much notice of the ants in their backyard. So with changes in the environment, these ants are coming up to the surface and he just happened to see them. So, yeah. See, my cynical brain is like, that guy found those ants somewhere else. I was like, you know what? <laughs> Underneath the house, going to put them there. And then everything will love me forever because I'm the scientist who accidentally found ants in his backyard. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they, he did say, you know, it's probably these are probably quite, well, they're not, probably not super rare. Otherwise, what are the chances? But they're probably just more common and other people hadn't noticed them Has yet. he rediscovered them somewhere else or just in his backyard? 
Only there so far. So he actually found them. <laughs> so they're them. still only there. Um, <laughs> to my knowledge. Um, so they so were he's first. he's crispering these ants. <laughs> he created his own species by crossbreeding like five different species. Farley the cynic. No. <laughs> it's a beautiful story because even, okay, I have to read this quote from the end of the paper because this made me, I thought it was really nice. We hope this discovery will encourage naturalists to don headlamps and hand lenses and head out into the backyard on warm summer nights. That's pretty good. That's mm. pretty nice. That's, that's quite good. wholesome. That's pretty great. <laughs> yeah. Now, I've got to keep the ant theme going. I've got, <laughs> I've got, Sorry, Farley, you're not going to get to talk at all. Yeah, I've got right. one more ant fact, and this is about a different type of desert ant. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> believe it or not. Uh, and so these guys, um, they have recently been shown in a paper in uh, American Naturalist, which is usually the domain of really complex theory papers. Um, they've been shown to dismantle spider webs that their nest mates are caught in. Wow. So they go out on foraging trips and some ants get ensnared in these spider webs. And uh, nearly all the, all, all the other ants on the foraging trip drop what they're doing and go and just systemically destroy these spider webs that their nest mates are caught in. Wow. And then they take them back to the nest and they groom all of the silk off them. Wow. Wow. It's, like, it's reasonably impressive. It's like the American military, like, don't leave a man behind. Just, <laughs> seriously. That's and, and so that's the other thing about this. They found that 6% of the ants that went over to try and help their uh, fallen comrades actually got ensnared and eaten by spiders themselves. Wow. wow. Really, really altruistic behavior. Self-sacrifice. Also, what is, what is warning them to? How do they notice? Is it just a visual thing or is it a sound or a chemical spray or something? Uh, so I believe there's an alarm pheromone. Gotcha. Okay. And they just all react and... Amazing. And um, so the reason behind this, they think, is that if they destroy all the spider webs uh, on their foraging trails, this is really good for their next foraging trip that follows that trail mm. because all the spider webs are gone in the future. So not only does it help the fellow worker out, it also helps the fellow foraging trip out. Well, it's funny if you remove the fact that that one's saved, then it's really like the hive must survive. And it's actually <laughs> sacrifice a few because the hive must survive. <laughs> then it goes back to less altruistic. It's like, no, it's all about the hive. We can definitely frame this in a very selfish way. I <laughs> yeah, think. Yeah. Who cares if we lose six? We know where the web is now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So mine is not ant related whatsoever. Um, I looked up something about cabbage and monkeys. I'm not sure if you guys heard about this thing. No? I don't think okay. so. So um, there's a group of capuchin monkeys in Brazil that were found, I think it was 2015, that they could use tools. And so they were using rocks and stuff to smash nuts. And it was the first time they've seen we use tools. But it's apparently been known about, other than the study, it was known about way before. But recently they found, through archaeologists researching it, they were able to find a trace of tool use in this population of capuchin monkeys that dates back 3,000 years, which is the only time we've ever been able to show a history of tool use in an animal other than humans. So That's they can go so back cool. and they also can see that it has shifted through time where they went from using really small ones to larger stones. And so pretty much it's showing that capuchin monkeys currently, if you compare it to humans, are in the stone age still. So we literally have this monkey that we can put into relative terms of us, they're actually in the stone age. So they potentially could actually progress further and further along and learn more complicated tools. It's the first time we've ever seen this or I've documented this. That's really neat. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Little monkeys using tools. So can we rule out that there was 3000 year old humans using tools next to cavitons that <laughs> happen to leave? The exact same tools the using exact now. Same tools. Now I agree you can. 
<laughs> That's a community know. scientist to be like, yeah, we just dated it. Yeah, we tossed some little tools in there. <laughs> so <laughs> cynical. <laughs> Yeah, just very oh, oh, I thought it was so cool, though, that the idea that they actually have a now a species that also has history of tool use. It's not just, you know, some animals use tools, humans use tools, we have this whole history, but now it's like, no, they also have a history of actually learning as well and evolving with tools, which is pretty cool. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay, more fun facts? I have a fun fact that everybody right. should know about. Do you know that the largest shark ever, great white shark ever recorded was seen this year? Huh. Nice. Do you guys not hear about this? Actually, maybe, it did, it did, did take actually, Twitter yeah. by storm. It was yeah. deep blue. Oh, uh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I thought that was kind of exciting. And I think I'd want to emphasize just how big the animal is. I know it's very well known, but I think it has to be said. But 50 years old, 2.5 tons, and 20 feet long. It's ridiculous, still. <laughs> and I'm sure we've all seen the videos and pictures, <laughs> but it's still freaking insane. So 20 feet, Folly. Mm. Oh, uh, <laughs> what? Three feet is a yard, and then a meter is 30. That's <laughs> Which is one furlong or something yeah. like that. No, so a meter is, so a yard is 36 inches. A meter is 39 inches. Okay. okay. So my computer tells me that is just over six meters. There we go. Big. I should have divided by three. That would make more sense. This wasn't in, <laughs> this wasn't in Australian waters, though, was it? Was it Hawaiian, I think? I think it's Hawaii. Yeah, Americans probably found it. It makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you guys are up. All right. David, did you want to drop in your fact? My, my one fact? <laughs> it's not really a fact. Well, it is, actually. So in January... <laughs> <laughs> Full of contradictions already. Yeah. yeah. Off to a good start. Um... In January of 2019, a tufted duck was found in Werribee. <laughs> oh my God. That is a fact from this year. Just want to, yeah. And you can hear more about that tufted duck in our episode about that tufted duck <laughs> called that, The Lost Duck. That tufted duck got a lot of airplay from our podcast. Yeah, so much. An episode and a half. I, um, I've got a great an anecdote about the tufted duck. Oh, go for it. Um, yeah. So while the tufted duck emerged in Australia, I was in Borneo. Um, and I just happened to, uh, to be in this rainforest with a couple of birders that we'd met over there. Mm -hmm. And when the news of the tufted duck um, hit us, these guys were devastated. <laughs> Now like, so they were from Australia. These. They were they were from Victoria, yeah. Mm. And we just happened to find them there, um, and they were going out every day and seeing the most amazing, colourful rainforest birds. Yeah. That, like <laughs> to me, looked like the most incredible birds on the planet. But these guys wanted to get on the next plane home to go and see the tufted duck. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, completely serious. I mean, as a bird watcher, this is why I hate bird watchers because <laughs> that's <laughs> awful. Just. Never being satisfied where you are, always wanting the next rare find. Yeah, and they were trying to train at least, at the very worst, change their flight so that it would land in Avalon, so they'd be closer. <laughs> no way. When they got in, so they could go and see it. They were they that intense it. about it. They were that intense about it. I was quite impressed. Yeah, yeah, that's dedication. Maybe for some context for anyone who is not familiar with our previous episode on the Top to Duck. So basically, one duck that isn't native to Australia and never been previously seen in Australia appeared in Victoria earlier this year. and For a few weeks. Yeah. yeah. That's it. And so birders just went absolutely nuts trying yeah. to see this duck. Including you guys. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 
Guilty as charged. Yeah. <laughs> I went twice. Sad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Is it my turn again? Mm-hmm. All right. Um, did you hear about the Voltron guinea fowl? Society? No, I The society. So <laughs> I'm making it sound like it's a secret society. But what, what they actually found was that this species of guinea fowl in East Africa has multi-level society. And this is the first evidence for multi-level society in birds. And so what multi-level society means is it means that you have consistent strong bonds both within groups and you also have relationships between groups. And so they found that these birds live in these large, stable groups and then these groups will associate with other groups without showing much aggression and they also seem to prefer... Some groups seem to prefer hanging out with some other groups more than others and so there's some preference for these different groups. So clicks, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, they studied the birds using GPS tags and they found, like, you know, at night you might have up to eight groups roosting together and then... In the daytime, they go off in their separate ways and they might even bump into each other during the day, these groups, and they'll mingle and socialise, but then they'll always split off back into their own same groups as before. And the groups are like can be anywhere from like 13 to 65 birds, so pretty big groups as well. And the really cool thing about this too is that these birds, like these kind of behaviours associated with mammals with really like big complex brains, these are guinea fowl, they're birds with little brains yeah, and so brains, yeah. yeah yeah and so to be able to do this you presumably have to keep track of a lot of information a lot of other birds identities so yeah so my immediate question here well the thing that springs to mind is that are they um groups that have butted off from each other or is there any relatedness structure between the groups yeah that's a good question i don't know um i haven't gone that far into it but yeah that's interesting <laughs> You can't be that specific with this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Put Annie on the spot massively. <laughs> this is not my research. Topic. This is not my research. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think I think this was also the first study of of this in these birds, so it's quite possible they don't know yet as well. And they oh, you yeah. can endlessly research that. That sounds really yeah, fascinating. Yeah. yeah. GPS tags are cool. You can learn a lot of stuff. Yeah, wish they were cheaper. We'd all use them. They're getting. The college was better funded. If you guys want to donate, by the way. <laughs> okay, Tom. Okay, so I've got, got a bigger one this time around, um, both in, in terms of the animal size. We're upscaling from ants a little bit. Uh, so it, be, it better be a major upscale, not just like slightly. <laughs> if we're going to talk about uh, tarantulas or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a beetle. <laughs> Technically, it's about 100 times the size. But <laughs> uh, so I want to talk about giraffe. Um, so a study that came out this year has shown that there is uh, color ver- or first of all there's colored dimorphism between uh, giraffes so males are darker than females usually hmm, but there's also a heap of variation in how dark males are and one of the things that makes a dark male is age so as they age they progressively get darker but not all males get to the same level of blackness, I guess. Um, Some stay quite pale. And so the theory behind this is that uh, perhaps colour is a signal of quality. And so darker males are more attractive to females. Now, this makes sense because as males age, they become more mature, they're larger, all this stuff. Breeding becomes more important to them. 
But the other thing that happens is with, as a male becomes darker, they tend to become more solitary. So what we end up with in these populations is these dark kind of broody males that are outcast traveling from group to group looking for females, which to me is like the typical, um, like, Attractive loner in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So interesting. Dark and mysterious. Yeah. Dark and mysterious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that a lot of lot of variation in giraffe color. Hmm. Interesting. It was bigger too. Thank you. You did upscale. <laughs> you did not lie about that. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I may have to move on to whales next. I guess. <laughs> yeah. That's the next. Yeah. All right. So I have another somewhat big one, I guess, but I'm not sure how much I should go into this because it's all about female common cuckoos. And so there is a paper that come out that's talking about the idea of cuckoos. If you don't know what a cuckoo is, it's a parasitic bird. What a cuckoo does, it goes into a usually preferred species of another bird and will lay its eggs in that bird's nest, fly away, and then that bird will therefore raise the egg of the cuckoo. And so some really weird things that go along with cuckoos. One of them is that they actually have different calls for males and females. And uh, if a female calls, it triggers birds go crazy because they're going to be parasitized. But when a male calls, they just don't care because male calls, you know, they're signaling females. So it doesn't really matter. So there's no reaction. But because the female call triggers this reaction, what female cuckoos, at least the common cuckoo, has learned to do is it mimics a hawk call. Um, and so it'll mimic, and to us, it doesn't really sound that similar, but to birds, it sounds similar enough. And so when they lay, when they sneak into another bird's nest, which is the reed warbler, they lay their egg, and then instantly afterwards, they will start doing this hawk-like predatory, or, you know, predatory call, and that will startle and distract the bird who it's predating, or parasitizing, sorry. And then that bird will get distracted, go all around, freak out, and they'll be able to fly away. Uh, and so they will not catch the cuckoo in the act. And therefore, they have more success if they use this call, this predatory call, this hawk call, than if they did not. So sneaky. It's so sneaky. <laughs> and it's really messed up. If you want to look at some really messed up videos or video, really messed up um, pictures, you should look up parasitized birds. And you'll see, for instance, like a little tiny wren feeding this massive, 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 massive baby, which is the chick of a cuckoo. It just looks so wrong. And, it, and they, they get really stressed out about it because they hyperactively feed it because the chicks are so big. So the parents are really proud that they have this really large chick, <laughs> not even realizing it's like, nope, it's a parasite. It's Record-breaking wren chicks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I thought that was so interesting that yeah. they can mimic a different bird just to confuse and distract. Yeah, that's so cool. So does it come a point where the parent notices that it's not? No, you, they have to be caught usually. I mean, I'm sure there's some birds. I don't know the exact how well birds or how often they succeed in actually parasitizing. But um, the idea I think of this is that if they don't get caught in the act, they most likely will be successful. So it's when they get caught is when the parents instantly recognize someone parasitized us, get rid of that egg as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or they'll even get rid of all their eggs. Well, yeah. So they'll lose some of their own as well. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah, because there are, oh. like, sometimes they do decide to ditch their eggs because they don't trust them. And it's just that trade-off, right? Like, you might get rid of some of your own, which is yeah. huge waste of resources for you, or you might risk... Because the other thing that cuckoo chicks, I think, always do, or at least usually do, is they kick out all the other yeah, eggs as well. Yeah. Oh, okay. So they become the only chick that they're raising. So and they're then the, the parent has nothing to compare to. They've just got 
this is the chick. There's this is your no chick. other chicks. That yeah. I think too, the nest yeah. size, a lot of times it's smaller birds, like a reed warbler is much smaller than a common cuckoo. So the idea too is that that bird will take up the most of the nest. Cause like bird nests are really specific to size. So you'll have like, usually when there's like two or three nestlings in a nest, that's like, that's a full nest mm-hmm. versus you put a bird that's five times your size and it. it's like, yeah, that one chick's going to take up the space. <laughs> It does look ridiculous. It's like, how can you not know that this? Oh, it's, oh yeah. Those fairy wren photos that came out. I'll, yeah. We'll post them online, but it's, it is just, it's so cruel. It's like, you know, they're so proud too. <laughs> <laughs> My boy's so big. Yeah. I got to feed him. Yeah. Uh, so is, fast. This is a real problem for the reed warblers as well, because especially where hawks are common, you can't ignore a hawk call, right? Yeah. You kind of have to react. And so the cuckoo's kind of, so when I got one over them here. Oh, yeah. It's pretty great. It's always an evolutionary arms race too as well. Like, you know, as in will the, will the warblers learn to recognize the difference and then will the cuckoo have to become more and more similar to the hawk or? Yeah. Yeah, you wonder in you know, a couple thousand years if their call is all of a sudden the exact same as a hawk or they change species of hawks or something. Yeah, and imagine if the hawk was gone but, you, but the cuckoo... Um, had evolved to mimic it so well that you still had hawk calls all over the place, yeah. even without the hawk even being there. Well, if either, really funny if you ever go to like say Tahoe National Forest or up in Lake Tahoe, which is just north of, um, I guess it's inland of San Francisco, they have uh, Stellar's Jays. And Stellar's Jays, pretty much a blue jay, but kind of cooler looking because they have a black head instead of a blue. So it's just a really pretty bird. But they mimic red-tailed hawk calls. So you'll be in the forest and you hear like, a, like that classic, like, that classic like hawk call. And you'll hear it and hear it and hear it and like, Sounds a little weak and a little like shorter. Like, what could that be? And how could there be like 30 hawks? You're like, oh, it's Stellar's Jays and they're surrounding me. And they'll just do it to each other all over the place. And they don't really know why they do it. At least I think I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure they don't know why they do it. It's a little disconcerting. Yeah, it's pretty great. But there's like, you feel like there should be hawks everywhere. It's like, no, it's just a bluebird just hanging out. Well, I have a whale fact. I like whale. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Gotten nice and big now. Um, so I don't know, you guys might've heard about this earlier this year, there was discovery of the fossil of the amphibious whale. So this was a whale ancestor that was able to both walk on the land and swim in the water. So, so it's half frog, mm. it's amphibious, it's half frog, half whale. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Not at all related to frogs. <laughs> so yeah, so for those who don't know, whales actually evolved from small hooved mammals about the size of a dog. That's that's where they come from. Wow. Um, what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah they, they, that's that's the idea is like it's like pretty much dog sized hooved animals that kind of hang on the water, and slowly they went further and further out, and their snout slowly went higher and higher because they can go deeper in the water and then what? slowly it evolved. Yeah, so they've just evolved to become more yeah. and more suited to water living because, yeah, they're, in, they're basically their ancestors at one point were in the water and they went out of the water and they evolved to live on land and at some point they went back into the water again. Imagine a dog that's, yeah, its nose just slowly went to the back. It's fine. It's easy. <laughs> makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, so, so other fossils like this have been found before, but this was the very first one found in the Pacific Ocean and it is the... Um, so there's a lot of questions about like how the early whales 
or amphibious whales got to North America, like how they got there, what way they went and what their sort of evolutionary trajectory was. So this was a kind of really cool fossil to find. And so just some things about it. It had, so it seems like it used its hind legs and its tail for swimming. And it so kind of probably moved maybe potentially a bit like an otter, the way, way it moved in the water. Um, it also had likely had webbed feet, but also kind of hooves, evidence Weird. of hooves. Yeah. Hooved, web, webbed, webbed hooves. <laughs> How would that even work? So like it had still had long toes, but I think just the... The connection between the hooves was webbed. I probably should have looked into that, yeah. that, that aspect yeah, I like a little bit more. the image more. better. It's better. It's sort of like, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was stated both that it was, you know, hooved and also that it had webbed feet. Um, probably. I mean, you can't tell necessarily from fossils, but they think it probably had webbed feet. So, yeah. And also, if you want to learn more about this, there's like a cool video that they did um, just with the researcher talking about it and with some graphics of like what this thing might have looked like and how it would have moved and how they actually know from looking at the skeleton of this thing how, you know, how these things work. So, yeah, it's pretty neat. That's very cool. Yeah. Okay, I actually do have a whale one as well. <laughs> do you? How was that really? Here? I do. I love wow. how you just really set yourself up. You just skilled up. I've got to say, I wasn't. I actually didn't realize I had a whale fact, but I do. So, but it's about killer whales. Wait, you wrote it down though, so you knew you had it. Yeah, but it was on the next page. <laughs> 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 I did this earlier today. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's about killer whales, um, and this one is particularly about killer whale grandmothers. And so there's this population in British Columbia where uh, a group of researchers have really good data over the last 30 years. So they know all the births and the deaths and also the, the, they know uh, all of the relatedness pedigrees between all of the individuals. So they know whose mother was who and whose, whose uh, grandchildren are who and all of that stuff. And from this, they were able to show that killer whale uh, calves that had alive grandmothers survived significantly better than those that had grandmothers that were dead. Um, and it was, and we're talking massive uh, survival differences, like differences between like 60% and 20%. So the grandmother really, really, really matters. And particularly when salmon are in short supply, which is the major food source of these particular whale populations. So grandma knows where to find food when the I salmon's gone, right? Yeah, I get the feeling that's what it is, yeah. Or they, least, they remember other yeah, places Yeah, I mean, it's an age go. thing, so they remember where things are so they know how to survive or know, at least know they have the knowledge of where other resources lie other than salmon. That's very cool. Yeah, and okay, so the big thing about this is that in the wild, killer whales are basically the, well, I think there's three species that undergo menopause. There's humans, there's killer whales, and there's one other type of whale that's somewhat related to killer whales. And the reason people think that uh, this occurs is because the grandmothers are really valuable. But before this study, we didn't actually know that that was the case. So this is the first definitive evidence for that. Hmm. That's, uh, a, that's actually amazing. Yeah. The so thing the that's significant that, too is... Yeah. Wow. So wisdom. It's like it goes back <laughs> to the whole wisdom idea. You need some of those kind of wise people in your group to help you when times are tough or just to guide people through life. Kind yeah, of thing. exactly. So we knew this happened in humans, Yeah, but we had no evidence from killer whales or any other species basically. Yeah. So it's like this idea that you were still benefiting your offspring 
after you've stopped reproducing. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, as you get older, it becomes more and more costly for you yourself to produce offspring. And it gets to a point where it's actually more beneficial for your daughter to produce offspring and for you to just help them raise that uh, infant. Hmm. Yeah, so it makes you more fit, so it makes sense. Also, incredible study site, an incredible study population. Wait, where was it? Puget Sound? British Columbia. Okay. Uh, not, don't have any details further than that, but yeah. wouldn't that be a great three months? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I don't really know if that's probably, I don't know, I don't know too much more. Do you guys have a lot more? I, I have, have all, a couple more. I have all kind of fun ones now. Do I have know? one fun one. Well, right. my fun one was about the giant, uh, the giant squid. The fact that we have the first video ever of it in its natural habitat came this year. Ooh, so that's they actually have cool. a video of a giant squid. Photos I think taken I of it. That. That's instead of like instead well. of just like the what was it the original one, which was just a a camera sunk down and then they came up with a hook and it had like a little I think a dead body came up and then also they attacked a camera, so you got like a quick view. But this mm. one was like an actual you could see the entire thing, mm. Sweet. which is pretty interesting. Yeah, that's nice. And then the other thing was there was seventy one new species discovered this year. Okay. Uh, all right. I've got study that found that vampire bats in captivity, they kind of make friends. And then when they go, you release them back into the wild, they hang out with those same friends. Oh, friendship. Yeah. So, so in other words, it's like school, like you like remain friends with your, like your high school and college <laughs> friends. Well, like jail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so you guys know Tom has a rough history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's, I mean, you know, loose definition of friendship. I think in the study they didn't use that term necessarily, like friendship-like. But, yeah, they hang out, you know, the ones that they hang out together with in captivity are the ones they hang out with when they're back in the wild and can go wherever they want and can hang out with whatever bats they choose to. They stick with the bats they have a good relationship with. And vampire bats really do have good relationships with each other. Yeah, they're really interesting. So one of the things they do is they... Um, so these are the blood-sucking bats, obviously, and they go out and suck blood, but some of them fail. And so when they return to the roost in the evening, they actually share the blood that they've caught with the ones or that they've captured with the ones that didn't actually get any blood that evening. Yeah, and they so, regurgitate it. Yeah, every evening they go home and they share all their blood. <laughs> <laughs> Awful. Which is, yeah, terrible, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> There was a study. Actually, realize why, why, that's why we freaking hate those. Like that's why they, the horror stories. Imagine that they go and suck your blood, and they go back and they all like spit it up into like a blood pile. <laughs> just, oh God! They're, just made of nightmares. they're the animals made of nightmares. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they re regurgitate it directly to other bats that didn't get to feed well that night, and so it's like I like, yeah, a, I like a pit of blood they're playing around in. That no. is a much clearer explanation <laughs> of what I tried to say. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and yeah, there's there's also the thing where. Um, the ones that donate more also seem to receive more. So there might maybe be some kind of reciprocal thing happening there. And relatedness doesn't seem to, it's not like just that they're sharing with their relatives, that relatedness isn't super important there. And yeah, I thought I had more to say, but I don't, that's it. Very cool. Yeah. You have another one, right? I, oh, it's not really another one. Uh, this one, I'm going to leave the realm of science and just go with an anecdote. Uh, I, I want to nominate a favorite animal of the year, uh, 2019. Um, and I'd like to put forth the mouse deer. Got it. <laughs> so this is something, this is another thing I saw in Borneo uh, at the start of the year. And it is the world's smallest deer. It's the size of a small rabbit. So I think it weighs roughly a kilo. 
Um, and they're the cutest things you'll ever see, except that like the vampire bat, they have this vampire tooth that sticks out of their mouth. And you can see it if you, if you walk past the side of them. And it's the strangest thing. This rabbit little cute deer <laughs> with vampire teeth that <laughs> walks so around the Bornean rainforest. I have no idea. I want to know what they eat now. What do they need a big tooth for? And their, their legs are too small for their body. It's yeah. a very strange animal. It's actually well, quite disturbing looking to me. Well, and the, the, But the cool thing too is I actually was going to bring this animal up because it was thought to be extinct in Vietnam and they found it for the first time this year. So it's rediscovered huh. this year. So there yeah. you go. That's not a bad, that's not a bad nomination. <laughs> we didn't plan this. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the, the, there's a, they have that kind of chihuahua look of constant um, anger as well. Kind of like a willy wagtail, I guess. Um, Which is a bird, by the way, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's just weird that they're that small. I would never think of a deer being that small. Nothing that should... Uh, well, they, they eat some fruits, so maybe the teeth are helpful for that. They could just grow weird. Perhaps. Also, maybe there's just no reason for them not to have the teeth like that. So they just kind of grew them. And they're one of those animals. So it doesn't, it doesn't hold them back, in other words. They're one of those animals that you can only see at night, usually. And so you shine head, you're shining a head torch around and they shoot laser beams back out of their eyes at you because their eyes are so bright. <laughs> I like the idea of literal laser beams, though. Yeah. <laughs> they also shoot laser beams. Vampire teeth and laser beams. Okay, the teeth are awesome. You didn't see the teeth, did you? What? Yeah. Okay, no, I was picturing much smaller than that. That's insane. No, they're massive. I think it's actually a, a saber-toothed deer is probably a better description than a Way better. Deer. Yeah, it looks, guys, it looks like a finger-sized tooth, like a pinky-sized tooth sticking out of their mouths. Yeah. I definitely recommend a Google. It's yeah. worth a Google. Probably just some weird mating thing. That's probably what it is. It's always something weird with mating. It's, it's always that. It's always it? that. Whenever there's a weird organ, it's like, yeah, it's for mating. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have your nomination for animal of the year that we're supposed to nominate now, right? Oh, well, I was going to, I was going to have a little tribute to, I guess, one individual animal of the year. Okay. So we have a nomination for the best. We have a tribute to another. Keep going. This is good. <laughs> um, George, the tree snail. He was the last of his kind <laughs> and he died on the 1st of January this year. Oh, that's very sad. Yeah. Yeah. So bring the mood down a bit, but yeah, he was 14 years old. Um, they, they named him very sadly after Lonesome George, who was the last, um, tortoise, the Pinta Island tortoise, but they were kind of hoping he wouldn't go the same way. So he was one of a, a family group. So he was born in captivity, but then all of his kin died. And so it was just him and they were searching to find another snail that he could mate with. And they never found one. Didn't they, they kind of doomed him. Which is no, the sad thing. It's like George. they probably wanted to get rid of that whole thing and like be like, oh, this is, he'll be fine. There's other kin and so it'll be great. But yeah. Yeah. It was actually interesting reading about the land snails of Hawaii. So this, so he was the, he was, I say he, he's like snails don't have sex, but you know, which they refer to him as a he. Which raises the question for me of <laughs> how was he, why didn't he produce any offspring? So they do need two to reproduce. Ah, so they just okay. needed that one. Old problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, so one thing they did do, which relates to our most recent episode, is they took, did take a tissue sample from him when he died to potentially bring back 
the snail through de-extinction one day when it's possible. So in two years, George will be alive again, in other words. <laughs> Roughly. Maybe maybe three. <laughs> there will be uh, multiple Georges. There will be a lot of Georges, yeah. 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 They're very cool snails. They, I mean, they were. They were very cool snails. There's a lot of other land snails in Hawaii as well, but they're all in trouble from habitat loss and an invasive wolf snail that eats them all, apparently. That's oh <laughs> wolf snail. It's horrible. It's an incredible name. Just slightly faster than other snails that can catch up and eat them. <laughs> A new sna- snail land speed record. <laughs> the only nomination I could think of for animal wise, I do like to acknowledge the beluga whale that was released by Russia by this found that was a Russian spy uh, yeah, that they yeah. taught how to play uh, catch with. <laughs> I think that that is still maybe the greatest animal story ever to come out. Okay. You need to explain this. You never heard about this? Yeah. Okay. I've heard about this, but I think so it's like, like the yeah. Russian spy beluga that was found and by so some fishermen. So Farley just did air quotes for those listening. Well, Cause I believe it actually was, it's from some <laughs> Russian facility and they believe it was used to spy. That's as far as I've really read it. Did it have a camera on its head? Had a camera or some device attached to it. Um, And so they, so that's what I'm saying. So scientists found it. They found this, it was told by these local fishermen. They went up to have found it and then they, I believe they removed it. And now it's pretty much, it's about as captive as an animal could possibly be that's in the wild, but it's a beluga whale. So Hmm. this beluga, as you probably, I'm sure at some point in your life, have gone to one of those aquariums where whales perform. This whale can perform. And so these guys on a fishing boat brought a rugby ball and were throwing it. And the beluga goes, gets the rugby ball, brings it back, pushes it back into the boat as they were playing fetch with a beluga whale in the middle of the Arctic. That's insane. Which is one of those really sad, because it's almost like one of those situations where it's great, it's in the wild, but like, it's so sad. This whale doesn't want to be in the wild. He's like a human <laughs> pet at this point. And he just lives somewhere in the Arctic now and hangs mm-hmm. out with the fishermen with rugby balls. But... I think that's just an amazing, incredible, strange, bizarre story. Very strange. Yeah. This hyper-intelligent, very well-trained animal now just plays rugby with fishermen. <laughs> it's not the data the Russians were after. <laughs> <laughs> just lots of I footage. assume, at least. <laughs> or you wonder if this is like a trigger word now, where like if you type in beluga whale rugby, all of a sudden all your data is hacked through Google searches. <laughs> Conspiracy folly. Yeah. <laughs> Conspiracy Farley is active tonight. Apparently, I'm not even that big of a conspiracy person. <laughs> New segment for later episodes. <laughs> well, what about some personal wrap-ups? All right, so some things that have happened this year, well, in 2019 for us include Farley is... Progressing towards the end of my PhD. <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> that is your life now. That is my life. That's all I do. That's all I think about. And that is it. Mm. I got married too, I guess, but. <laughs> <laughs> I think we may have talked about that though. So. Yeah. Tom? Uh, you started your PhD. Sta- started the PhD, yeah. At um, the other end of things. I went from, I guess I went from being this kind of random job person in the faculty that would do anything from marking exams to writing poll questions to lectures to babysitting children for <laughs> lecturers um, to starting a PhD. So I guess, yeah, I guess I've come a long way as well. That's so depressing. That was your life? That was, yeah, that was my life for a couple of months. I'm become- so sorry. <laughs> oh, house sitting as well. I mean, there were perks. Oh, that's pretty nice, yeah. yeah. And I think you actually finished the biggest thing this year. Yes, I finished my PhD. Like, I actually finished it. 
I got to wear a hat and everything. It was pretty good. Yeah, what was the date you officially graduated? What was it? It was the 12th of December. There you go. So even when this podcast airs, it'll almost be a month probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I am a doctor. Yeah, she's officially a doctor. Ooh, we should have introduced you as a doctor. Yeah. Doctor. Dr. Annie. I'm Dr. Annie. <laughs> I'm Farley. <laughs> well, I think that's it on our... Hey, hey, hey David. Oh, oh you accomplishments this year. Oh, you already brushed it off, though, really. <laughs> um, I started a new job at university, not in the researching side, but just, you know, at the uni. Um, still found time to travel and search for ducks, as we all know. And next, or 2020, there'll be no duck talk, I think. No Anymore? ducks. No we're more. putting a total ban on ducks. I cannot believe you even said that. I'm gonna for, we're going to find a reason to talk about ducks. Okay. I'm, I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> so the duck ban is already lifted. Yeah. We can talk freely about ducks. We'll give it a few episodes. The duck ban is lifted. <laughs> the shortest lift ban. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a wrap on 2019. Um, thank you guys all so much for listening and being with us for what is, how many episodes have we done? 13. 13 episodes. Thank which you, David. Is, this is number 14. This is four, 14 episodes of Animalia. Um, we really appreciate y'all listening, and it's been an absolute pleasure producing these for you most of the time. It's what? mostly a lot of fun. Mostly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's always fun. It it's is. Good, I'm yeah. glad. <laughs> um, Thanks, Tom, as well, for joining us today. Yeah, no worries. First time, first time co-host, long-time listener, I guess. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, excited to see where you guys go. Thanks, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> um, as always, you can find us on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. Yeah, just look for Animalia Podcast. And we have a Patreon account if you would like to support us. It really does help pay for our equipment and our website and all the things that are surprisingly expensive when you run a podcast. And otherwise, we look forward to talking to you all in 2020. Will you look forward to talking to you more in 2020? <laughs> it's okay, we can say this. It doesn't have to apply. <laughs> Only to the release date. We already said it's 2019 when we're doing this. All right, let's let's let's, okay. let's, let's okay. bye. <laughs> <laughs>